Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hello. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Somerville, Mass. Hi, Mimi. Hey, everyone. This month, we are talking about a new series on Netflix called Beauty Queen of Jerusalem. And for our second segment, we went way out of our comfort zone and we are talking about a Jewish video game called The Shiva. Okay, well, let's get started by talking about Beauty Queen of Jerusalem. Mimi, you want to take it away? Yeah. Um, as Tamar said, Beauty Queen of Jerusalem is a new show on Netflix. It previously came out as 20 30-minute episodes in Israel, and now Netflix has made it into 10-hour-long episodes. The show follows the Hermosas, a wealthy Sephardic family who own a shop in Machne Yehuda in Jerusalem. Gabriel runs this shop with his overbearing mother, Mercada, who runs his life, including his marriage to his wife, Rosa, and eventually their daughters, including Luna, the eldest. The show is heavy on scandal. We've got affairs, terrorism, threats of marriage, oh gosh, between Sephardim and Ashkenazim, and it looks closely at life in Palestine in the teens, 20s, and 30s. So we all watched a few episodes. I watched the first three. How many did you ladies finish? So my disclaimer at the top is that, as Tamara always says, I am joining us from Toronto, and it turns out that Netflix chose not to make the show available in Canada. So during a recent trip over the border with mediocre Wi-Fi, I managed to get in only the first episode, but that is all I have seen. Well, I think, where where should we start with this show? I, you know, talking about starting, it it jumps around decades and generations quite a lot. Should we sketch out what happens to the families or just talk about our impressions? I have something to say about like the overall thing of the show, but it basically follows Gabrielle, who is the oldest child of Guy, who runs a store in Machina Yehuda, and um, his parents want him to get married. He's Sparty, he sees a extremely hot Ashkenazi lady named Rachel, and he really wants to sleep with her and like makes out with her and then doesn't get to marry her because like, oh my gosh, scandal, marrying an Ashkenazi. They're so horrified by that idea. He doesn't even really, he knows he can't. Meanwhile, his mother has a, after his father dies, his mother has a dream that uh, his father has told him who he should marry. And it is this woman, Rosa, which is really weird because Rosa has been hired to like clean at night, the family shop. So when the reveal was like, Rosa's who you're going to marry, I was both like, well, that did seem like where the show was going. And also, what? Like, why? <laughs> it Honestly, this mother, you would think that if she had had a dream in which her dead husband said, our oldest son should marry the lady who cleans our shop, she would have been like, absolutely not. Like, she doesn't really take things sitting down. So it's really weird that she goes along with this. And then she, like, basically bullies her son and his wife. They have babies and they're horrifically girls. Her son is still in love with Rachel, and Rosa is kind of inscrutable. The show also goes kind of back and forth in time. And so for some of the time, we see their oldest daughter, Luna, as a teenager who is kind of like mixing with British soldiers with, I have to say, not great English accents. Rosa also has a brother who's kind of a no-good Nick. That's basically, I mean, there's like a lot going on, but that's kind of the gist. What I found really frustrating about this show was that I was like, I actually don't understand what the show is about. I realized at the end of the first episode that I was like, a lot has happened. But if you were like, what is this show about? I would not be able to tell you like, I think the first scenes are about Rosa and her brother Ephraim, but it kind of doesn't seem like it's about them as much later on, like there's the focus really seems to shift. You know, it really portrays 
Gabrielle, he's in love with this woman, Rachel, and he's forced to marry Rosa. I was just like, are we supposed to be feeling bad for him? There's also all this stuff about how Rosa is like so ugly. And I was like, Rosa is super hot. And so it's like also very weird. You know, it's one of those shows where they're like, oh, so unattractive. And you're like, what are you talking about? And they don't even stick her behind librarian glasses. No, to make no, it plausible. they like don't put lipstick on her. And they're like, oh, so ugly. At least try. And it's like, what? Um, but yeah, I guess I just was like, I don't really know what this show is going for. But that said, like, I didn't dislike it. I think I'm going to finish it. I just was, like, kind of confused as I was watching it about, like, what kind of show is this? But what did you guys all think? Well, I also found the show to be confusing. I mean, I thought that we were getting a show about pre-1948 Palestine. And that was intriguing to me. And then I thought that we were getting a show about pre-1948 tension between Sephardim and Ashkenazim. And I was like, okay, mm -hmm. that's intriguing to me. And, and I think you're right, Tamar, the, the focus keeps shifting, um, not just between the generations, but also like, who should we be feeling empathy with. Yeah. And I think I also had a hard time understanding some of the characters' various motivations. I, I, it's important to note that this show is an adaptation of a novel called The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem. I think it suffers from what some adaptations suffer from of trying to include a lot of scenes from the book, but without any of the background. Mm -hmm. So one thing that happened was Rosa and Gabrielle have a son. And in the show, the son is never well. Then the mother, Mercada, sends the son to a neighbor's house where he dies. This is a like a, an eight-day-old baby that they send to the neighbor's house and he passes away. But all of this is just like this sort of standalone event that makes no real impact on the story. Yeah. I have to imagine that in the novel it does make an impact and that this is just an adaptation problem. But again, I have to agree to Mark, it was really confusing. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to stick with this. We'll see. All right, Zahava, you only saw one episode, but what did you think? Well, okay. So at the end of the first episode, we've only made one time shift. So I had to look it up later to see whether we were going to keep bouncing around in time or whether we simply had done some history as exposition and then we're moving forward into the 30s. So from from subsequent reading, I know that we are going to keep shifting around in and visiting the family at multiple points over multiple generations. And if I could, I would continue watching it. I was really absorbed. I think so far, accents aside, most of the acting seems good. And I am intrigued by the idea of something that explores pre-state Israel as this sort of messy, factional thing in a place that's sort of figuring itself out and where it's not clear yet what it kind of society it's going to be and what are going to be the dominant factions. And I think that's interesting. I'm not yet sure which of the storylines are actually important, as as you all are saying. So there's a degree to which a lot of that, you know, there, there are a lot of threads begun in that first episode. And I don't quite know what the show is really going to stick with and, and explore to the end. So I'm anticipating that watching it actually could be a tiny bit frustrating because some of those threads will inevitably be dropped. One core element that I got from reading about it after the fact was that the interplay between the various Jewish 
forces, right, the Irgun and the Lech, and like the Histadrut, right, like the proto-labor entity and the tensions internal to the Jewish presence in Palestine that are both sort of the fighting forces that are seeking to throw off the British mandate but will evolve into Israeli political parties one day, that that the tensions between those groups are going to be really important. We only see a little seed of that in the first episode. Mm. I think that's really interesting. I think that the the opening scenes where we see Rosa and her brother Ephraim, you know, facing violence from the the Ottoman, you know, the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman presence in the beginning is probably sort of planting the seeds of the idea that he's going to grow up to be an anti-colonizer, sort of um, serious opposer of the British mandate as a result. Yeah. I would like to follow that through, but I don't really know where it's going. And it does feel kind of messy. I will say that visually, I think it looks beautiful. I think it's visually very lush and very rich. The colors are like deep and dark and saturated and it looks very cinematic to me. You know, it sounds good musically. I won't say as good things about the aging makeup that we see on some of the actors (laughs) in the flash forward sequence. I'll also say Michael Aloni, who plays Gabrielle, who many people will recognize as one of the main characters from Stissel and who I originally encountered as the host of the Israeli version of The Voice. Like, whenever I see him, I'm like, is there only one actor in this country? Yes. And he is, for what it's worth, Ashkenazi, as is the actress that plays his mother. And that itself feels quite strange in a show that is so directly about tensions between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. So I thought that was interesting. I thought it was an intriguing show that I would like to follow through. And unfortunately, Netflix's rules about Canada will not let me. So if any of our viewers have any ideas for how I can watch this show without running afoul of too many laws, please let us know. (laughs) I think you just need to come back to the United States. (laughs) Which we've really made look so attractive lately. <laughs> I'm sure you're dying to do that. Yeah. I also really like the kind of like historic. I like the look and feel of the show. Like, I think that part was very enticing. And I just, you know, I love watching a show in Hebrew and I loved all the different languages kind of mixing together yes. on the show. That was really fun. It was just like interesting. I think that I. I know, I don't know, a medium amount about, like, Palestine from, like, the turn into the 20th century until, like, the creation of the state. But, like, what day-to-day life was like, I don't know. And, I mean, this might not be right, but it was interesting and fun to watch. However, this this may be a me problem, as we say in my house, but, like, I just hate watching shows that are just about someone having an affair and we're supposed to kind of like be on their side I I'm not there and I was just like it seemed kind of like the show was like Gabrielle and Rachel should be together it's only it's just so cruel that Sephardi and Ashkenazim can't be together but I was like "Mm." I mean they're both married to other people this feels like it's not even that I'm like morally opposed to it. It's more that I find it so stressful <laughs> that I'm just like, I can't enjoy like watching you have this relationship because I'm just so stressed out about like all of the pain you're causing other people. And are you going to get found out? And no, no, no. Like it's no, not for me. And then also I just was like perplexed that Gabrielle would be like more into Rachel than Rosa, who I just find to be like empirically way hotter and more interesting that I was just like, I I don't really follow. (laughs) I read an interesting post in Hey Alma. It was basically making the argument that you should read the book first. I won't share any spoilers from the article because it does have some, but one of the interesting things about the author Bridget Senziak's understanding of the book is that the book really focuses on these generations of women. And I think that maybe because the show cast, as Zahava rightly points out, the only male actor in Israel, Michael Aloni, they end up focusing on him. I don't think Gabrielle is supposed to be the focus. It's supposed to be about the women. And I think Tamar, that would help with this sense of stress, like, oh, 
this likable guy is pining after somebody. I want him to have her. But that's not really... We're, we're not supposed to like him, I don't think. Yeah. Well, I didn't, so <laughs> in that respect, <laughs> it worked. I guess I was still seeing him as Kiva from Schissel, so I liked him. Yeah, for the record, by the way, Rahul was also a minor character in Surgim. There's just a really limited stock of actors in this small country. There was a piece by Michael Oren, former ambassador to the United States, in Tablet, really criticizing this show. Huh. Coming from a place of his politics, I also did not know that Michael Oren has developed a little sideline in writing commentary on TV and movies as they depict Israel and Jews in tablet. Oh my God. This is not, not the first time he has done this. Also, as I found out only from his author note at the bottom of this article, Michael Oren has apparently written a novel. So he's, um, he's stretching. But <laughs> So his critique essentially seems to be that if you are somebody who kind of thinks of the Israeli problem as beginning in 1967 or even in 1948, and you watch this show, that you will be utterly missing both the Jewish-Arab tensions in this period and the Hebron massacre, the Tzfat massacre, things that occurred during this period that would definitely have informed the experiences of people living in pre-state Israel and how they relate to the other, because all kinds of others are very present in this show. Also, the notion that the show's depiction of Jewish-British relations is very, you know, it, it kind of rosifies it and it makes Jews that were fighting against the British mandate look like, what's their random grievance? Like, why are they so randomly violent? Why do they care so much about this as opposed to really understanding this as a fight against colonialism? Obviously, this critique uh, on both counts comes from Michael Oren's personal politics, but I do think that, and again, I haven't watched past the first episode, so I don't know if I agree with the critique per se, but I do think that especially on the second point, understanding the relationship that Jews have to the British mandate and before that to the Ottoman Empire is an important precursor to understanding the intra-Jewish debates over how to respond to and fight against the British mandate. And if that discussion of what is the best way for Jews to experience and fight against the British mandate if they were going to do that it is a major theme in the show, then the fact that the Brits are introduced in the show as like mostly boyfriend prospects and mm -hmm. uh, not as colonial occupiers is an important thing. It's, you know, that that itself may be kind of a, a weird valence that the show gives these relationships. But don't you think that's because the gays in those parts, I mean, I know you haven't seen many of them, but it's about Luna, who is a child. And like, yeah, the like guys in uniform are like are hot and interesting, even when they're not actually hot and interesting. They're hot and interesting to her because like power and teenagers like to me, it's like, yeah, also like Jewish teenagers when they go to Israel, they're like, oh, my God, Israeli soldiers are so hot. And it's like totally irrelevant if the soldiers are in fact hot it's just like soldier equals hot so to me it's like that actually felt a very believable like that these like young girls would be under the sway of these men in uniform even though they were not ideologically on board with each other and two it felt very relatable because of the like israeli soldier aspect to a lot of american jewish teen approach to israel yeah i hear that I mean, they're not particularly exciting as soldiers go. But again, in my experience, that's extremely not the point. <laughs> as, as Luna grows up, I mean, we've watched through the third episode. I think Luna's probably 16, maybe 17. Yeah. Like Tamar right. said, sort of pining after these British soldiers. And I have the sense that her... She she's developing an awareness of the political situation and and where she and her family fit in it. And so I'm hoping that we'll see her mature and, they, and hopefully her crushes as well. Yeah. And my understanding from uh, reading ahead is that we do see her as an adult with children herself mm -hmm. uh, in some of the flash forwards. So 
It's an interesting place to go. I feel like I have been somewhat muddled in talking about this, maybe understandably, but I think part of our upshot is the show is somewhat muddled. There's a lot of threads here, but a lot of them seem worth pulling on. Yeah. I also think we haven't really talked how nice it is to just like see a Sparty family as the kind of center of a story and on television, like that feels very rare and interesting. It's just like a very different flavor, no pun intended, of Judaism than what you often see depicted. And I was kind of like, even though sometimes it was a little surprising, like I, I, I was into it. I liked it. I will say, speaking of languages, which they, you know, sort of move seamlessly between Arabic, a little bit of Spanish, Hebrew, and English, I have to tell you all, please do not watch this show dubbed. When you watch it dubbed, you just lose so much. Um, I mean, I can't watch a TV show without subtitles if it's in Hebrew. So I was watching it with subtitles. I tried watching it dubbed so that I wouldn't have to look at it the whole time. And ugh, it's horrible. Don't do it. I mean, Tamar, you know, what you're saying that it's it's nice to see the main depiction be of a Sephardi family. I think it reminded me a little bit of The Club, um, Mm -hmm. which we reviewed, um, you know, a few months back, also on Netflix, also a um, an international show that Netflix has picked up that one um, depicting Jews in Turkey. And again, you are seeing a Jewish population in a changing society trying to find its place. And there's Ladino music in that. That's obviously a different strain of Sephardic Judaism. Again, that was like a richly colored, visually cinematic, also slightly confusing sometimes historical Jewish society. And this is different in the sense that it's set in pre-state Israel. And so you have the Jewish community trying to figure out what the country is going to be as opposed to simply trying to find its way as a minority, as a minority culture. But it, it actually felt to me like it's interesting that Netflix is bringing both of these shows to a broader audience and that there's actually some commonality there. Yeah. Although I will say that like the the club has so much less Judaism and like people being actively engaged in Judaism than this, which is I think why I liked this more. Like, I mean, not the only reason, but this felt like a show about people who really care about being Jewish. And I would say that was only kind of true about the club. Yeah, agreed. It seems like we're kind of mixed, but I'm super curious to hear what others think of this show. I'm interested to talk more about it. So if you watch it, let me know because I want to chat about it. For our second segment, we (laughs) played a video game and it's called The Shiva. Now, here's how we found this. Somebody tweeted about it and I was like, this exists And then I was like, we should try it. But am I correct that none of us are people who like regularly play video games? I was so confused as to what we had to do to play a video (laughs) game. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So this is, it's like an old fashioned video game (laughs) in that it was designed to look like it was made in the 80s, but it was in fact made in the early 2000s and re-released in 2013. It's a point and click adventure game. It was released in 20 in 2006 and then re-released in 2013 with an updated version entitled The Shiva colon Kosher Edition, which is very funny. <laughs> okay, so we don't have context in terms of like how good is this in the scheme of like other games or really what does one usually do in these point and click adventure games? However, we all tried it. I will just give a very brief synopsis of like what I experienced. I'm going to say no spoilers, but I don't even like this is very Googleable. It's about a rabbi, Rabbi Stone, which is very funny because the rabbi emeritus at my synagogue is Rabbi Stone. And he's like a sardonic bummer of a dude. He has a bunch of emails <laughs> in his inbox 
about how his sermons really suck and everybody is like leaving the shul because the sermons are so bad. And he's also running a synagogue that is like going under, they have like no money. And the police come and they're like, this guy died and he left you $10,000, but also we think maybe you killed him. And he's like, no, I had a big falling out with him, but I didn't kill him. But I guess now I should figure out who did kill him because I don't want to get in trouble. Then you, as him, direct him around New York to do various mystery hunting, clue finding adventures you meet his wife, you meet a scheming rabbi, you, uh, that isn't the main character, you meet the cantor who's like, the cantor of the synagogue reminds me of Robin, like Batman and Robin. (laughs) Like he's like a young Aryan looking guy who seems very chipper, even though he seems to be like working as a cantor for zero people. <laughs> um, also, he sings I Don't Alam in the very beginning, but then stops in the middle. So maybe he only <laughs> learned like the first half of I Don't Alam. <laughs> um, a bunch of stuff happens, but it's like, you know this, if you have ever played this kind of game before, which I had not, or at least not since like literally when I was in grade school. So it's like, choose your own adventure. And then there's like different ways that the game can end up depending on the choices that you make. It like starts with this like intense meditation on uh, meditation might be an overstatement, but like thing about the nature of death. It does seem like this rabbi is like wrestling with some deep issues while also like being a mystery detective rabbi. (laughs) I don't know. This was weird. What did you guys think? (laughs) So I think we should say, like, the vibe is very film noir. He, mm. like, the music, the, like, color, the the voiceover of Rabbi Stone that, you know, the, the voice that voices his lines sounds like, I'm trying to be a hard-boiled Sam Spade detective. I know, I was like, what? Uh, I love that somebody was like, rabbis, what they sound like, <laughs> wrong detectives who smoke a lot, like. So this game brought home to me that I am bad at this. Like this, <laughs> this reminded me of, of some hours that I tried to spend playing Mist when I was in grade school. This is not Mist, um, but that I and and that I always wound up like going in circles because I couldn't figure out the map of the island and couldn't figure out the puzzles. The map of this is quite simplistic. There is a literal map of Manhattan that appears that helps you navigate around and the puzzles are not deeply sophisticated, but at the same time, I was still bad at figuring them out and had to Google and uh, and get tips from some game forums to be like, how do I log into that other rabbi's email? And I kept walking into this location and not encountering the person I was scheduled to encounter because I hadn't previously visited the right place. And (laughs) so in general, I'm just, I I didn't feel good at this. In some ways it's like, like it's, it's hitting certain beats of the Jewish characters. It's funny that whenever the rabbi talks, one of your options is to give a rabbinical response, which is to answer a question with a question. And they're just like, shul shedding members and and losing revenue i mean that one hit home as a as a late covid shul board member but at the same time i basically don't know how much uh, spiritual and narrative complexity is reasonable to expect of a video <laughs> game um but ultimately this seems like a rabbi who's really unhappy to be jewish investigating a murder which is kind of a weird premise <laughs> <laughs> Mhm. Mhm. Um, Mimi, it was yeah, it was giving me um serious flashbacks to the Yiddish Policeman's Union, mm. Michael Shaben novel, novel that I absolutely love. I like Zahava was uh, I just I got so stuck at certain points. I had to text you guys to figure out how to log into the rabbi's email. It took me a while even to figure out like what we were supposed to be doing here. Um, Like, I think I was waiting for, I don't know, them to just tell me people to show up. Yeah, I thought it was really fun. I think 
it feels like the writers of video games have fun writing these things that there were like, I don't know. It, it just, it's, it seemed very silly and playful within this world. There were a few things that I thought were just like in poor taste or weird. And I'm getting most of these from a spoilers tweet thread that Zahava shared. Is it okay? Can we talk a few spoilers? I think it's hard. It came out in 2013. So I think we can. I mean, actually, that was only the kosher edition. The uh, presumably trafe edition came out before then. So I think it's fine. I think if we don't spoil any of the like clues or things that you have to yeah. do in the game, that's probably right. reasonable. Okay, great. So one thing that we learn is the former shul member who dies, who leaves the rabbi money, was kicked out of the shul. Later, we discover he was kicked out, I think, because he married a non-Jewish woman. And there's just like a lot of weird conversation about the fact that he married a non-Jew. I don't know. It just it didn't seem necessary. He could have been kicked out for some other reason or just left in a tizzy. I, I didn't like that. And I didn't like reading that that spoiler. Am I alone in that? Should I, did I take a video game too seriously? No, I didn't get to that part. (laughs) (laughs) Or I like, I got to him meeting the wife, the the rabbi meeting the wife and her being like, get lost. You're a jerk. But I didn't understand why they got kicked out. I missed. Well, the other weird thing was this wife, the non-Jewish wife was in mourning for her husband observing various Jewish mourning practices. So yeah. she had covered the wind, uh, the mirrors. And I think she was waiting for people to call on her for a Shiva calls, but she's the one that the rabbi kicked out because she wasn't Jewish. Yeah. I mean, we do find out later that they have become members of another shul and yet we don't see anyone else paying Shiva calls, which feels sad. Yeah. Wait, um, you have to say the name of the shul. It's the funniest <laughs> thing in this video. It's B'nai Ben Zion. <laughs> so, so funny. <laughs> What's funny about that also is that you don't know if it's intentionally funny or right. unintentionally funny. Like it could be either one and it's really hard to know. Yes. I mean, actually, I would say like that is an asset of the game as a whole is like, I don't know if the people who wrote this are in on the joke or not. I am going to choose to believe that they are, but if they're not, it still works. Right. I mean, it's a little sadder, but I I get to still be amused. Well, it sounds like I got farther in the game perhaps than, than you did. If you didn't get to the intermarriage revelation, I still could not managed to not die in the last set of sequences. I tried what I thought was every possible combination of actions and responses and still always wound up dead. So I feel like that is a reflection more on me than on the game. It is true, just in terms of evaluating this as a game to the extent that we are in any way equipped to do that, it is true that early on, you may have multiple choices of what kind of response to give to a question, but until some pretty late pivotal moments, they don't seem to matter. Like Mm -hmm. you could choose anything and produce the same results. Other than that, though, I guess any kind of, you know, adventure game is going to have its own quirky premise, especially if you have like layperson investigates murder, which I think is not a super uncommon premise for games or like mystery novels. And It is just sort of fun from a like quirky sideways representation perspective to have it be a Jewish story and have it be a rabbi and have him be saying things like those people met in shul. Is that guy even Jewish? And, you know, for all that, you probably shouldn't be judging people's Jewishness based on the ethnicity of their last name. Another potential strike against the game. The fact that somebody's last name is DeMarco doesn't necessarily preclude their being Jewish. I I think the fact that there are good guys and bad guys in the rabbinical camp in this game, and that is also kind of interesting and quirky, whether we should be happy with the representation of either rabbi in the game, I think is uh, 
definitely in question. But again, I don't know how seriously to take questions of representation. I did share a Twitter thread from a gamer named, I believe, Jessica Price, and we can share a link to that in the show notes, raised some issues with the representation and playing into potentially some anti-Semitic tropes or presenting a Judaism that's a little bit informed by a Christian culture, like assuming that the rabbi's sermon plays a much greater role in people's experience of a service than it actually does. Even that tweet thread concludes that the problem isn't really with the game, but the, but the fact that there's no representation of Judaism in games generally. So this one is uh, having to carry a fairly heavy representational burden. And when it doesn't meet it, you're more disappointed, which is more an issue with the genre than with the game in and of itself. Yeah. I found myself wanting, I wished that I were playing this game with friends, you know, just to sort of laugh at the quirks and act out the scenes or give, I don't know, silly accents to people. It just, it feels really, I don't know, fun and light and something that I do want to share. Yeah. It did seem like something that would be really fun to do, like at a party Yeah, um, with a bunch of people. I also did text Mimi and Zahava earlier today that one of the options early on is, I think, angry response, honest response, or rabbinical response. (laughs) And I was like, the three genders. (laughs) Because I just found the first time, I mean, that's like the, the whole like first third of the game is basically like a bunch of options. And then one of the options is rabbinical response, but sometimes it is very funny. And there is a scene, or I got into a scene where Rabbi Stone goes to visit this other rabbi and they just go back and forth with answering each other's questions with the question for a very long time. It did feel like the game was in on the joke at that at that moment. And I was very amused, even though I, it also meant I got nothing out of that conversation. Like, I think I was not in fact supposed to go there, but I was so amused by B'nai Benzion that I couldn't stop myself from going there, even though I didn't have any clues yet. By the way, there is a feature in the game. So there's a, the game has a sort of intranet, like a, an internal network um, called RavNet that is sort of the the master internet of shuls, I guess. Ravnet um, is that, a real thing. Is really? it? Yeah. Does it actually have a search function where you can look up any Jew and find out what <laughs> shul they belong to? Because I hope not. Oh my God, that would be amazing. I don't believe so. Ravnet is a <laughs> rabbinic listserv, I want to say. So I think it's it's not... It's not what this uses that, but it is a thing. Right. Okay. So, but in, in the world of the show, it's a both a, an email service and a source of information. But one of your options when you log into Ravnet is also to click on a button to get jokes. So you can also <laughs> access a database of Jewish jokes in this game. And even though I have already died many times trying to complete this game and restarted or gone back to the pivotal moment right before my character plunges off of whatever um i i kind of want to log back in just to read the jokes <laughs> i feel like whatever database of jewish jokes is in here is probably worth 20 minutes of my time oh okay. this is so fun i want more things like this oh i thought you guys were gonna be like oh, let's never do this again <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I definitely lost patience with actually navigating the game and trying to solve the puzzle. But I do think that the world of gaming, this podcast notwithstanding, is being taken more and more seriously as a cultural medium. And there is a lot of sophisticated visual and written work happening in games now. Um, And there are a lot of people who spend a lot of time experiencing that culture. And to the extent that you know, that world could be rich enough to include Jewish representation. That seems like a good thing. Agreed. All right. Well, (laughs) I guess the search is on for our next Jewish video (laughs) game for for us to review. Can't wait. In the meantime, let us endorse some things. Zahava, 
what do you have to endorse this month? Well, I have a real endorsement, but first, just previously, I'm going to do a quick callback endorsement. A few years back, during a moment of Israeli parliamentary turmoil, I recommended that Americans who find the whole idea of coalition politics and parliamentary government confusing should educate themselves about this the fund way and go watch Borgen, which is a Danish government show. The first episode is about putting together a coalition government and Borgen is now on Netflix. The first three seasons, the original three seasons of Borgen are now on Netflix and Netflix has created a new and what we hear is final standalone fourth season that is 10 years after the end of the third season. So I am currently in my rewatch of season one. I'm going to watch the first three and then watch the new Netflix season. So I can't recommend or not recommend the new one yet. But we are now in yet another moment of Israeli political turmoil. And Borgen is on Netflix. So call back. (laughs) Feel free to check it out. Because when I first watched Borgen, I did so by... I was in grad school and I requested the DVDs via interlibrary loan. This is much more accessible. So <laughs> go for it if you've been putting off Borgen and think you might have some patience for uh, for a Danish political drama. The real endorsement that I have is a short story. There is a collection by Ted Chang, the science fiction writer. I was originally published under the name Stories of Your Life and Others, but the feature story within it, story of your life, is was adapted into the Amy Adams movie Arrival several years ago that got Oscar buzz. And so you will sometimes see the collection reissued as Arrival. But it is a um, a collection of short stories. And the one that I want to recommend is not that one, even though it's good, but one called Tower of Babylon, which, as you might imagine, is a retelling of the Tower of Babel story from Genesis. And it revisits that story with an with the eye of a science fiction writer who is interested in, okay, how did this pre-mechanical society achieve this massive engineering feat? And what what did that do over the years that it took? What would that have done to a society? Do it like how would people live? How would people make their way up or down the tower? What would the construction look like? What would it do to people's experiences of relationships and the world around them? Would they, you know, and so he constructs this universe in which there are entire communities of people that live up the tower. And that, you know, you have suppliers that go partway up with a wagon and pass it off to the wagoners that live at the second tier. And then they go back down because otherwise they would never reach the top. And the just sort of beautiful, vivid exploration of what it really would have been like as a pre-industrial, pre-modern society trying to build a tower that reached the sky and to try and, you know, touch the face of God, as it were. The main character of the story is um, one of a group of stonemasons from the non-Babylon that is sort of contracted from a society that's good at stonemasoning um, to come and come journey up the tower because they're almost at the top to try and tunnel through the vault of heaven. Their theory is that heaven is is basically something solid like stone. And so they contract with these stonemasons from uh, a neighboring people to come and tunnel through the vault of heaven at the top of the tower. And so somebody who's not part of the people of Babylon and not uh, not experienced at the way they do things, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing through his eyes how these people have arranged themselves in order to make this possible. I feel like I'm not explaining this in the most compelling way, but it is really cool, very interesting, makes you think about what are, I think, like 11 verses in Genesis in this very uh, in this very direct and, and tangible way that I think are really cool. So the Tower of Babylon story by Ted Chang in the collection Stories of Your Life and Others, which has also been published as a rival. How long is the story? Like, is it a pretty, is it one of those short stories that's like 50 pages long or is it like more in the 20-ish range? I want to say it's probably like 25 to 30, but I've returned it to the library, so I can't check. Uh, (laughs) But it it did not. I'm curious if it was like more novella-like or more story-like. Cool. Mimi, do you have something to recommend? 
I am going to ask our listeners for a recommendation. I, after five years of marriage and five years of struggling about whether to build a sukkah and how to build a sukkah, we are buying a sukkah kit. And I'm looking for, I know about the sukkah project. Maybe that's We have just, a sukkah project sukkah. Totally. Is that the only one that we should, should I just go for the sukkah project or... Are there other Soka kits? A little clarification. I don't want to go to Home Depot and buy wood. I just want something to arrive that I can put together. And I want there to be a bamboo mat. And I, I just want it to be very, very simple. And then I can go all out on decorating. But I don't want this to involve a trip to a hardware store. So Listeners, if you have any recommendations beyond the Sukkah project, please share. If I hear nothing, I'm going to get a Sukkah project. Sukkah, I'm going to spend every last dollar of it and I'm going to be happy about it. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Love it. Love that for you. Um, Okay. So I have, just because we were talking about games and gaming, I don't think I have recommended already the game that has taken over my life, which is Wingspan. Have we talked about this before? Okay. Wingspan is a board game. It is very Shabbat friendly. It is a game where everybody is making their own bird sanctuary and you have different birds that you put into your sanctuary and you also like lay eggs and whatever. It's sounds like, how could that be fun? But it is super fun. It is so like beautiful and calming. My family plays every day. Wow. Uh, there is not a day at this point where like it used to be that after our younger one was in bed. We would like maybe watch something and then go to sleep ourselves. And now at least half the time we play wingspan. And when our older kid is home, we always play wingspan. Like it's like we, and we play it together. It's really fun. And there is um, an excellent app. So you can also play it on your phone or iPad if you would like to. And I was like, how good could this be? Cause I heard people saying it was great, but I stand corrected. It is wonderful. And your mileage may vary, but it has been really, really lovely for us to be, to have like a, a space to play with our 14 year old every night. It just is like a kind of like relaxing, no screens, just sitting around and talking to each other and like looking at beautiful bird pictures. Yeah. This fell into our lap, but it has been so wonderful. So wingspan the game highly recommend it. But the other thing I want to recommend is a newsletter by, I think a friend is maybe an overstatement, an acquaintance of mine named um, Ruth Franklin. I really admire Ruth. She's an, an outstanding writer. She is writing a book now about the diaries of Anne Frank. And she wrote an edition of her newsletter, which is called Ghost Stories, about how we're not um, adequately remembering or understanding um, Anne Frank's diary. I will link to the newsletter in our in our show notes. But the like main takeaway, which I actually knew a tiny bit, but I don't think I fully understood, was that there's actually three versions of Anne Frank's diary. So there's the diary as she originally wrote it, and we have three volumes, but we're missing a big chunk in the middle. Like there's a big chunk of her diary that was not found. While they were still hiding, there was a radio piece, which they heard that was basically like, please preserve things about the resistance because we want to make a museum of it after this war is over. And so she decided to rewrite her diary so that it could be preserved. So she took her existing diary and intentionally rewrote it. She changed the names and she edited it and she made some changes, but she didn't complete that revision. Then, of course, uh, the family was found in their captivity. They were taken to concentration camps and 
um, all except for her father, Otto, were killed. He eventually got the diaries, both the first and the second version. Mm -hmm. And he published a third version with some slight edits. So he like took some things that were in the first version and put them back in. And he took some things out. Some of the things I know, um, it's kind of famous for having edited out some stuff about menstruation. And I think the idea is that he took that out and she wouldn't have, but in fact, that's not true. She herself had taken out the parts about getting her period. Some other parts she took out, he took out some parts where she said nasty things about, um, her mother and the um, other adult woman in the in the annex with them. So whatever. There's it's like it's much more complicated. That there is basically like no one version of Anne Frank's diaries, and it is very interesting to think about like our perception of who she was and what she was trying to do through the lens of like actually there isn't one thing. The thing that we thought it was is maybe not exactly. I don't know. I just like it's very interesting to think about. And I know that Ruth is working on a book about this and it's making me really excited to read that book and just understand better. I have never been like a big Anne Frank's diary fangirl, but I'm very interested in like why it is so compelling to other people. And I'm really excited that Ruth is going to be helping break that down. So, I mean, not in a bad way. Okay. We did it. Thank you all so much for listening. And thanks to Jordan Daniel Mills for editing our show. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you'd like us to talk about in a future episode. If you have other Jewish video games that you want us to review, <laughs> evidently that's something we do now. <laughs> um, you can also leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. Look for Jewish Public Media or on our website, jpmedia.co. Just choose Talking in Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also, of course, donate to Jewish Public Media, which is a really great way to make sure that our show is supported and that we can bring you a new episode every month. Mimi, thank you so much. Thank you, Tamar. Thank you for finding my favorite video game. <laughs> <laughs> um, angry response, <laughs> rabbinical <laughs> response, or brush off. Those are the <laughs> options for the end of the show. Um, <laughs> Zahava, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Yeah, thank you both. This was fun. All right. Well, I will see you next month where we will all be logging into Ravnet with our password, which should definitely be Gishmak. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> all right. See you Until next, next time. time. <laughs> Bye.